Good morning, church. Pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, we will be reading this morning John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. So starting in verse 29. The next day he, saw, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for, the purpose, but for this purpose I came baptizing in water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. You may be seated. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for this privilege to gather together around your word and together in fellowship with each other around your glorious word and around your worship of you. Thank you for your grace and mercy towards us as your people. And Lord, please help me as, uh, as a minister of your gospel to preach your word faithfully. Help me not to add to or, or take away from it in any way, but to be completely faithful to your word. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for declaring that word to us, for revealing it to us. And thank you for demonstrating um, the beautiful, beautiful change that you've wrought in our hearts through the presence of your Holy Spirit um, and through enabling us to live a life that's pleasing to you. Uh, we thank you. We love you. Please bless this time together this morning, we pray. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So church, it's been a little while since we've been in this part of John chapter 1. It's definitely a little while, so I'm going to give a very brief overview and recap. So of course, in the Apostle John is the one writing the Gospel of John. Kind of figures, you know, because the name's right there. Uh, of course, there are various uh, reasons why we believe that, even though he does not specifically say his name in that book, but we, we do believe that uh, based upon other evidences throughout the Gospel itself. Um, and of course, the first 18 verses of chapter 1 is basically a theological summary of why John the Apostle is writing this gospel. Of course, he's writing it under the direction, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he explains why. And he's very clear, as we've seen in previous sermons, that his whole goal is to point others just like John the Baptist is doing in his ministry, to point others towards Christ, and not just towards Christ, but towards a proper understanding of Christ. Matter of fact, we see at the very end of John 2, in chapter 20, verse 31, he also kind of resummarizes everything into his thesis statement, kind of at the end of the, of the gospel. And he says that he, all these different things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And of course, this, this passage actually takes place within a, a three-day window of time. 
Christ has already been baptized by John. He's already gone into the wilderness to be tested. He's already, of course, passed perfectly. He's coming back through now, back through the same region uh, near the Jordan where John was baptizing. And, of course, on the first day, uh, the, the passage previous to this, a contingent of representatives from the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling body of the time in Israel, they, they had come to John asking him, well, who are you? Are you the Messiah? And he was very emphatically saying, no, I'm definitely not the Messiah. And they asked him, are you Elijah? He's like, no, I'm not Elijah either. Are you the prophet who's to come? No, I'm not that guy either. Well, who are you then? And what authority do you have to baptize? Why are you baptizing all these people? And he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord. It was very clear in that, in that passage that his authority is coming from the Lord himself as a representative and a forerunner on behalf of Christ. Well, now this passage is actually taking place the next day. And we can tell that because the first three verses, or not, not first, first, first three words in verse 29 is the next day. So this is the next day. This is day two. And John is about to declare to the people who had come to him for baptism who Jesus is. But before we get there, I want to share some interesting information with you. I found this out uh, over the past week or so doing some study and preparing for the sermon. Uh, there is a survey called the State of Theology Survey. You may be aware of it. You may be keeping tabs on it every two years uh, because it is a, a every two-year survey. It's conducted by Ligonier Ministries. And they have a sample size of 3,002 respondents, supposedly even from the evangelical church, um, so what we're supposed to be. Um, and these respondents, they're male and female. I think this last survey was done online because it was coming out right when COVID was first kind of starting to come out and starting to affect everybody. Uh, but they still sent out the survey and they still had a pretty high response rate. And based upon this survey, they have 30, I think it was 35 questions that they ask you in the survey, all dealing with theological doctrine, fundamental theological doctrinal matters. There were two, though, that stood out for today. Both are true or false, and I will give the caveat for the first question. You, you really need to read it and think about it, but... If you have been in God's Word and you know what it says, you should be able to figure out the answer for both. The first true or false question. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Just let that, I'm going to read that again. And this is a test question. This, this is not what Ligonier believes. I want to clarify that. This is a test question, but this is to test people's belief of who Christ is upon his nature. True or false, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now we know from Scripture, Jesus is not created. He is the uncreated one. He has always been he has always been the, the eternal Son of God, and He always will be the eternal Son of God. 
So no, he was not the first and highest or first created being. That is actually an ancient church heresy known as, known as Arianism. And it was very soundly denounced at the church of Nicaea, the church council of Nicaea in AD 325. Because they looked at all scripture and they very soundly said, absolutely not, this is heretical, we will not hold to this. So this is a heretical belief. Now here's where things start to get a little bit scary. Out of the respondents, 55% said true. 55% of the respondents who answered that question said, Oh yeah, we agree that Jesus is the first and create first, greatest, highest created being that God, that God ever made. Let that sink in. 55% over half said true. They agreed with the statement. 30% said they disagree. And 15% said they were unsure. I move on now. There's another one too. Second question right after that. And this one's pretty, this one's should be much more clear. True or false? Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Once again, the, the answer for that is false. He's definitely, definitely God. Made multiple, multiple claims of that truth throughout the Gospels. And John's very clear about that. Matter of fact, this is the same man who said in John chapter 8, Before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews were about to stone him for that. They were about to kill him. Why? Because they knew exactly what he was saying. They knew exactly that he was equating himself with God. And he had every right to do that because he is God. We know that from Scripture. They didn't at the time. They didn't see that truth that had not been revealed to them. But they, they thought he was a heretic for saying that. And they were going to kill him for it. Now, back to the question. Like I said, true or false question. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 51% said they agree, 37% said they disagree, and 12% said they were unsure. These two questions alone tell us something that is absolutely startling. There are some within the supposedly evangelical church who do not know who Jesus is. They flat out do not know. And by the way, I have actually asked people, even this week, these same questions. Under the, under the right context, I explained the situation, so I wasn't just trying to go around testing everybody. But I did ask a few people these same questions. Some answered correct, but there were some who didn't. And fortunately, there were more of those than the ones who answered correctly. And there are folks who supposedly have been in church for a long time. That's a scary thought. And the reason why it's a scary thought, church, is because this is the foundation. The under, a proper understanding of Jesus Christ is the foundation, not a, the foundation 
for everything else we believe. If we do not get Christ right, everything else is going to fall apart. And it's not going to be there. It's, it's going to be on a foundation made of sand. And when the waves come, it's going to wash it away. Because Christ alone is the solid rock upon which we stand. No one else. So we have to get this right. This is not a negotiable question. This is not a, a light matter. This is of the most important caliber. The most important caliber. And I share these, these results. Not to, not to try to bring you down. Not to try to disappoint. Not to try to dog people. Because... That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to educate and to enlighten folks so that when we go out and minister as ambassadors for Christ, we can know part of the problem. And we can know kind of how, how to address this very grievous issue. And by the way, this is exactly what John was doing in his gospel as we just read and this is what John the, John the Baptist was doing, also as we just read. Now, of course, there are parallel accounts of, of Christ's baptism. We see it in Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17, Mark 1, 9 through 11, Luke, and Luke 3, 21, 22. But John, he doesn't really mention, I mean, he talks about the baptism, but in this passage, he's testifying about, about Christ's baptism. The baptism's already been done, but he's telling people about it. He's telling people what happened. And he's giving a testimony about Christ. And by the way, I, th I would say for, for John the Apostle to be using John the Baptist as kind of his first witness which even Dr. John, Dr. John MacArthur brings this out in his sermons on the same subject, he's like, this is a pretty reliable eyewitness to use. Like, this was the man that Christ spoke extremely highly of in Matthew 11, saying that basically up to that time, there, uh, of, the, uh, of men born of women, he was, he was the greatest. Now, obviously, Christ was still the central preeminent one. He was, he was greater than John the Baptist. I want to very much clarify that. But he was speaking very highly of John the Baptist. He was holding him up in high regard. So if our Lord and Savior will do that, I say he's a pretty good, pretty good witness, pretty good eyewitness, pretty reliable, his, his testimony. Every single account throughout the Gospels of, of the baptism of Christ all fundamentally, fundamentally point towards Christ being the Savior of the world, the one and only Savior of the world. John very much brings this out. And each and every account, even in this retelling of the account by John, John the Baptist and John the Apostle, we see a beautiful Trinitarian interaction, Trinitarian relationship. We, we see the Father, we see the Son, and we see the Holy Spirit. All these accounts working together along with other passages of Scripture very clearly teach a, a Trinitarian view of who God is, 
Another thing we need to always emphasize. We, we definitely, as a church, believe one God, three in persons, one in essence. Not three gods, one God, three in persons, one in essence. That's what Scripture teaches. And we see that interaction in all these different accounts. And by the way, that is a direct um, evidence against another false heretical belief called modalism. Uh, also thoroughly denounced by early church councils. Modalism is the idea that actually God is only one person, not three, and that he basically, basically has just expressed himself and revealed himself differently throughout time, but that he's not really three persons and one in essence. He's just one person. That's a false heretical view. That's not what Scripture teaches, so I just want to clarify that too. There are three points I want to draw from this passage this morning under the overarching point that we have to get our belief on about Jesus correct. First one is declaration. And of course, John shares this declaration in verse 29 when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now John was, of course, sharing this. He was declaring this to the people who were coming to him for baptism. This phrase has very deep meaning, and the audience at the time would understand more about the use of lamb. Why, 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 was, why was this kind of analogy used? Why was this wording used? Well, also according to Dr. John MacArthur and to his commentary, the lamb had three primary uses in Judaism at the time. First, was as the sacrifice at, at, for Passover. Of course, we read in Exodus that the Passover lamb was instituted because God gave the command for that and for the blood of the lamb to be wiped across the doorposts of the Jewish people so that their houses would be spared from the angel of death coming through. We see this in Exodus 12, verses 1 through 36. We also see the lamb used as the prophetic lamb led to the slaughter in the prophecies of, of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 53, verse 7, when it says that, that the lamb was led to the slaughter and did not open its mouth, pointing towards Christ. So far, the Passover lamb and this, this prophetic lamb are both pointing towards Christ here. There's a third use, too. And this was continued all the way up to that modern time, so they would have been very much aware of, this, of this, this use. As a daily sacrifice for Israel. At that time, a lamb had to be offered for every family once in the morning, once in the evening. And they were offered as a sacrifice to cover the sins of the family. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness for sins. However, each of these places and uses for a lamb ultimately point towards Jesus. Because Jesus is the true and perfect Passover lamb. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was the perfect lamb who willingly offered himself 
as the once-for-all sacrifice for his people to save them from their sins. Paul said to Timothy, this saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance that Christ came into, wor- came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. We see elsewhere in the New Testament where it says that Christ came to seek and save the lost. That was why he came. That was his mission. And he did that perfectly. The prophecy of Isaiah, like I mentioned earlier, the lamb led to the slaughter who did not open its mouth. Christ was innocent in every way possible. He did not sin once. He never made a mistake. He never sinned against the Lord. He kept the the law of the Lord perfectly, unlike unlike us, because um, we can't. We're sinful human beings. We cannot keep the law of God perfectly. No matter how hard we try, even the very best attempts, Scripture says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. Speaking of our, our attempts to earn salvation. It's got to be Christ. And He was that perfect Lamb. And as He was led to the slaughter, He did not open His mouth. He did not try to tell them, Whoa, no, 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 don't take me, man. No, 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 I don't want to go. Yes, He did pray to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if there's any way possible, please let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but Your will be done. He was perfectly in tune and perfectly obedient with with the will of the Father. And he knew why he came. And he was willing to go. And he did not open his mouth. He went willingly. And on the cross, he even said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when he said it is finished on the cross, I promise you it's finished. It's done. He did it perfectly. Everything we never could. Also, unlike the daily sacrifice that the Jews had to make for their sins, Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice made for His people. We see this in Romans chapter 6, verses 8-10, through 10, and Hebrews 10.10. 10. His sacrifice will never have to be repeated. Ever. He, he, he died for His people once. That one sacrifice was more than enough. It was perfect in every way. We also see John the Baptist is careful to reiterate, to emphasize the centrality, the preeminence, the preexistence of Jesus Christ. Also, as further evidence against the idea that Christ was just some kind of highly exalted created being. We see it in verse 30. When John said, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now, it is definitely most likely that John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. And he was born before Jesus was. He was a little bit older, a few months older, probably about roughly six months. So why would he be saying of a man who was born after him that he ranks higher than him because he was before him. He's referring, of course, to the preexistence of Christ, not to his physical birth. Christ has always been there. He will always be there. He is not a created being. 
There we go. So the first point, of course, was declaration. Oh, and by the way, also, there was something interesting. The Jews, when they were asking John about who he was, and when they were really, they knew the prophecies of the Messiah, but they were viewing those prophecies through the lens of their current condition. They were under the oppression of Rome. They wanted to, pre, they wanted to be free of Rome. So the Jewish people, in general, they were looking for a military Messiah and not a sacrificial Savior. They were looking for a military Messiah and not a sacrificial Savior. But they, and we, need the sacrificial Savior. Now one day, He will definitely come in glory and power. And he will definitely set things right, and there will be no rebellion to him, ultimately. But that time's not quite yet. We're awaiting that second coming. So in the meantime, our prayer needs to be that, we've, that we're found faithful. So declaration was the first. Revelation is the second point. The revelation of Christ through the Holy Spirit. We see that in verses 31 through 34. In these verses, John the Baptist gives the reason for why he knew, finally why he knew who Christ was. And that was because, for one, the Father gave him a promise. He told him, the one that you see the Holy Spirit descending and remaining upon him, that's the one. He's the, he is the Messiah. He's the one who will be baptizing with the Holy Spirit. He's the one. And you know what's great? When God makes a promise to his people, when he tells us something, he actually does what he says he's going to do. And, that, and that's exactly what he did for John the Baptist. When Jesus came to him telling him, uh, you need to baptize me, and of course John in the other Gospels says that he was saying, no, Lord, I need to be baptized by you. But Christ emphasized that in order to fulfill all righteousness, no, I need you to baptize me. And John, John the Baptist was obedient about that. And he did. And when he did, the Holy Spirit came and remained and descended upon him as a dove. Now, as, once again, Pastor John MacArthur said in his sermon, that doesn't mean he was an actual dove. He said, you know, it was kind of funny, uh, Dr. John MacArthur said he could have been he could have been coming in the form of a canary. We don't know. But, the, but nevertheless, the Holy Spirit came. He, he rested upon Christ and he remained with him. He did not leave him. That revelation of who Christ was through the coming of the Holy Spirit, that, that was all the proof John the Baptist needed. And isn't it beautiful, too, that today in our salvation, it's the revelation through the Holy Spirit of God's Word that saves us. That's what happens. That's the beauty of the Gospel. When we read God's Word, it's the Lord Himself, it's the Holy Spirit who... who makes those words come alive, who makes those words come and sit in our hearts and who 
um, who, of course, convicts us of our sin, but also gives us the comfort through Christ, too, knowing that if we repent, our sins are forgiven. They've been put on Christ, and He bore them for us. That's the beauty of, of the Holy Spirit. or That's one of the many beautiful things about the Holy Spirit. And by the way, He is a He, not it. Like, so I just want to clarify that. I did actually correct that a little bit in, in the translation. Anyway, so we see the Holy Spirit coming. We see that same interaction, the Father predestining us for salvation in Christ, Ephesians 1, 1 3 through 6. We see the work of Christ bringing us salvation, uh, salvation and forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. And of course, we see the Holy Spirit applying the work of Christ to our hearts and lives, and He is the seal of our salvation, Romans 5, 5, and Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. Through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist and John the Apostle could resoundedly declare through or declare Jesus Christ to be the Son of God. They declared because of the revelation. Now the final main point is demonstration. So we have declaration, we have revelation, we have demonstration. And that is the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, verses 32 and 33. That word that was used in verses 32 to 33 when John said, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like, like a dove, and he remained upon him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, On whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's emphasized twice here. That's, that's important. When we see anything in Scripture emphasized multiple times over, that's a pretty good indicator. We kind of need to underline that. The Holy Spirit came and he rested and he remained Upon, the, upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He never left him. And you know what's beautiful about that? He has come and he remains with his people today. The Holy Spirit empowered Christ for his earthly ministry. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. He helps us to crucify our flesh daily, which, by the way, we, would, we absolutely need his grace and his spirit to do that. Because humanly, that's impossible. And he works in us to be ambassadors for Christ today by sharing his gospel to the lost around us. We see that in Acts 1.8, in Acts 4.31, and 2 Corinthians 5.20. The Holy Spirit remained with Christ with faithful presence. And so does the Holy Spirit dwell in and remain in us today. When Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross in John chapter 14, well, it, was, it, it wasn't in John 14 that went to the cross, but in John 14, he knows what's happening. He knows what's about to happen. He's spending some time giving his, his disciples some last-minute instructions. And if there was ever a time that Jesus and his humanity needed some encouragement, it would be honestly this time. But his disciples instead were going, 
wait a minute, what are you, what are you talking about? What, you're leaving us? You're going to go somewhere? And we can't go? What are you talking about? Stop doing this to us. What are you talking about, man? So he has to encourage them. They didn't say man to him, by the way. They were probably not like surfer dudes from California. They were Jews, by the way. So, yeah, clarifying that. But they were wondering. They were, they were anxious. They had anxiety. They were scared. They were just wigging out. So Jesus told them something. He told them and he promised them, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Referring in that passage to the Holy Spirit. And he's done that. The Holy Spirit is with his people today. What a beautiful, beautiful truth that is, church. Also, the Holy, Com- the Holy Spirit comforted Christ in his earthly ministry. So does he do for us today. So that we may comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received through Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5. So the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that was the demonstration of of who Christ was. Of, of the, it, he, it was the, he, he was the demonstration of that promise that the Father had made to John the Baptist. So in summary, this morning, this passage that we've examined, as well as all of the Gospel of John ultimately, has been written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we will have life in his name. That's the reason. We, we, he, John the Apostle and John the Baptist wanted to transfer the attention of people off of themselves onto Christ. That should be our goal too. Let's transfer folks' attention off of us and onto Jesus because he's the one and only Lord and Savior. There is hope and salvation in no other name except Jesus Christ. Acts 4 verse 12. Because He alone is our perfect sacrificial Lamb of God who has taken away our sin and the sins of all those who will trust in Him. And He's the eternal Son of God. He is not a highly exalted created being. Finally, through God's Word, we see a beautiful declaration of who Christ is. Because the glorious and merciful revelation of God in Scripture, with the Holy Spirit applying the Word to our heart and causing us to demonstrate that we are now who we are, that is, the redeemed people of Christ, the redeemed people of God through Christ. So we have the declaration, we have revelation, we have demonstration. Through hearing, we we believe in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your love for us as your people. Thank you, Father, for your word that you've given us. Thank you for allowing us to hear your word throughout our lives. And Lord, thank you for revealing yourself through your word. Lord, how blessed we are to have 
the very words of God on the written page. And Lord, it's not, it's not just a book. It is your very written word. It's the Holy Scripture. Thank you for demonstrating your love and your care for us through Christ. And thank you for demonstrating your love and care and presence in us through your Holy Spirit. Please help us to be faithful to your word and to be faithful to share the truth of who Christ is with those around us. Um, And help us to hold to that truth always and to never let it go. We thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name.